Hello and welcome to Fidelity ETF Exchange powered by Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Yonkas Bouchard welcomes Andre Bruno back to the show. Andre is Director of ETFs at Fidelity Canada, and he sits down with Etienne and reflects on the notable ETF industry trends of the past quarter. They highlight how flows in the Canadian ETF industry continued their strong momentum in Q3, bringing the year-to-date total to $30.1 billion as of the end of September. Some other notable headlines include weakening demand for U.S. equity ETFs in favor of international equities, continued appetite for cash alternatives ETFs, as well as a rebound in the ESG category. This podcast was recorded on October 20th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Claude Bouchard, a.k.a. EJB. And we are back with another episode today. We are doing our quarterly recap of the Canadian ETF industry. We're a little bit behind, but we've been busy with some live events uh, at Fidelity here. Uh, my co-host and I actually just got back uh, end of last week from our great event in Palm Beach, Florida, where we heard a bunch from our uh, portfolio managers. We talked ETFs with some advisors. We had a specific lunch and we talked about various topics that we'll get into a bit later, but obviously uh, we do want to recap what's happened in in the past quarter. Uh, Before I get started on that, uh, quick recap of our last episode. It was a really fun one to do. Uh, I had the opportunity of hosting uh, one of our analysts that's been on the team for for a very long time, Audrey Kim, and we talked about the Fidelity's five-year ETF anniversary. So we actually launched our first products in Canada back in September of 2018. So obviously, September 2023, that meant uh, we hit some some milestones from, from a time standpoint, but also from an asset standpoint. We're now at around $4 billion in assets with about 40 products. So that was a cool episode. And we also discussed some uh, ETF trading tips and myths that we debunked, five of them, five of each, to stay on theme there. So that was the last episode. You can catch that on fidelity.ca or on your favorite podcast app if you would like to have a listen. So let's get to today. And joining me for for our episode is uh, Director of ETFs here at Fidelity Investments Canada. Many of you have heard from him on the podcast before. Uh, you've probably seen him on Fidelity Connects. He's always, he's a bit of everywhere at Fidelity, uh, uh, a man who can do many things. Andre, thanks for joining us again today and really happy to have you on. Always great to be here, EJB. Um, you know, you referenced our uh, our conference there in uh, Palm Beach. It's been a tough change of scenery for me coming from the sunny shores of Florida <laughs> to it's quite cold and rainy here in Toronto today. So uh, uh, dreaming of those beaches. Although we didn't get we didn't get much beach time because we were we were quite busy uh, at the conference. Absolutely, yeah. It would have been nice to 
to get a little bit <laughs> more outside and take advantage of it now that we're back in this fall kind of rainy weather. But uh, I'm not going to shed too many tears because I think you're covering our event next week in Scottsdale. So you're going to be back out in the sun with, with another group of advisors. So uh, I, I guess I'll be missing out on that one. But that, uh, it was good events and it's great to see all uh, advisors join us and, and you know really get to hear directly uh, from Fidelity PMs and stuff. So we'll definitely have a chance to talk about that. But Andre, I guess, you know, where I'll start is just kind of a, an update on flows. And, you know, the quarter as a whole, albeit market performance was pretty difficult. Um, you know, you saw equities across the board and bonds pretty much across the board being down on the on the quarter. Uh, but flows in the Canadian ETF industry were, were very positive. You saw about $8 billion in net new assets in the quarter uh, as a whole. About 1.6 of that going to equities, 6 billion going into fixed income. Uh, you know, a few other key points there that I highlighted. ESG is actually coming back slightly. So about 1 billion in net new assets in the quarter. Uh, that's almost good for 50% of the total for the year. So uh, a little bit of interest going that way. We saw in the in the fixed income category, cash alternatives continue to rake in a bunch of cash. Uh, more than 3 billion in net new assets there. Uh, just relentless buying of of an asset class that obviously has no duration but is yielding quite uh, quite a bit, and we can talk about fixed income a bit later. But those are some of the main headlines that I mentioned. And I guess bringing the year to date total of over thirty billion, and to put that in comparison, last year we ended at thirty five. So we're likely going to, I guess, finish the year off with uh, stronger net inflows than we did last year. So, you know, just off the hop, some stuff that I mentioned there. Is there anything that stuck out to you, or maybe? comments that you have around some of those key headlines yeah i mean i think the the cash trend has been a strong trend we've seen all year so there hasn't been a massive shift uh in that trend whatsoever i mean we are starting to see a little bit more interest in and i'm looking at just kind of flows from last week we're starting to see a little bit more interest in in, in some duration products um, and I think that's potentially a trend we might see going into kind of year end here. Well, you know, obviously, um, you know, when you take a look at central banks, whether it's the BOC or the Fed, um, you know, especially especially on the BOC side, looks like we're probably done here in Canada. We got a pretty favorable CPI print this week. Um, it looks like the Fed, you know, might get one more in, but it looks like we're pretty close to the end of the line from a monetary policy perspective. So, um, you know, overlaying that again with the macroeconomic headwinds, um, obviously there's a lot of talk of, you know, recession. Um, so putting those two things together, I think the, the, the duration conversation is happening now. And I think we'll see a shift at some point again here in, 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 uh, Q3, Q4 this year. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point because it is, it it is very tempting to go on that short end of the curve and with with the yields we're at they're at now for the those cash alternatives you know north of four and a half you know probably north of five percent at this given point given where the uh, curves are in the us and canada it, it does seem attractive as a place to park cash in the meantime of having some conviction one way or the other right and i think that's kind of what uh was interesting so far this year is that there seems to be a lot of inflows but there hasn't been like a very high conviction move in one way or the other uh given bonds and equities are pretty much even if you take out the cash component from a flow standpoint one that i thought was interesting because if you look at year-to-date numbers and i'm let's i'm gonna just for the audience you know i'm talking about end of september data because you know that we are recapping the quarter 
S&P 500 was up, you know, about 13% in Canadian dollar terms. NASDAQ was up 25, 20, let's call it 25 to 27%. Um, you know, those numbers are pretty solid, but you're, you're seeing outflows from U.S. equities. Uh, so, so it's kind of the opposite of what we usually see where it's kind of, we see, maybe we'll see flows come in, I guess, as we move forward. But it seems like a lot of investors and advisors are somewhat taking some of those gains and reallocating specifically to areas like international, which are actually, if you look at the IFI index, it is positive on the year. So about 7% as of the end of September, but it's definitely lagging the US. Is there any any reason to that? Do you think it's rebalancing or, or some people maybe moving away from a market that's trading at a premium, obviously the US market being that one versus say international or even Canada? Um, What's the dynamic there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think equities have been are kind of tricky right now. I think a lot of people are don't really know what to do with equities, right? Again, again, on on this backdrop of, you know, are we going to come into a recession? It's it, people are in a bit of uh, paralysis mode. And then again, if you and I know we discussed this a little bit down at the conference, but you know, if you take a look at kind of the breadth of gains in the S and P five hundred, well, there there really isn't <laughs> breadth of gains. Yeah, it's true. I know. I, what are those? <laughs> obviously, obviously, you know, everyone's been talking about the Magnificent Seven, which has more or less been when bringing up the S and P five hundred this year. If you look at an equal weighted S and P five hundred, it's I think it's what like flat on the year, maybe slight positives. Yeah, or some, somewhere As around end of October. It's flat to nothing and in september was up like a couple percent so yeah so 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 in reality you know there there's not there's again there's there's only a handful of names that are pulling up the market um so uh, yeah again i think i think folks are are just kind of in a bit of a you know wait and see mode in terms of of what's going to happen with the economy here so um you know i i think i think people are you know, maybe no, they're not shifting totally defensive in terms of their equity allocations, but they're certainly thinking about it. They're certainly being cautious in terms of the the shifts to international. Um, you know, it, it's you know, there's certainly some headwinds for international markets as well. Obviously, Europe, there's some headwinds there from from an economic front. There, there's they're still a little bit behind the ball with regards to uh, inflation. It's still running a little bit hotter there relative, um, relative to North American markets. There's certainly a valuation argument that can be made. Obviously, you know, historically, international markets typically trade at a discount to say the U.S. markets, but I think that that discount is is a little bit wider than it's historically has been. So I think you're certainly seeing some interest from a valuation perspective, and that's why you're seeing some dollars flow into international markets. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the valuation one, I feel like it's one we've been talking about for the past 12, 13 years, and the discount's been there for a long time. Uh, now it's obviously larger. So actually, I was I was looking this up in Jul- during the month of July. It's actually at the end of the month of July was the largest gap in valuation for U.S. versus international markets over the past 20 years uh, at around 6.3 of a PE. Uh, now it's come down a little bit, but still that that gap that you were mentioning is there. The other point being is like the reason you're buying U.S. markets for more is you've had better earnings growth and you've had on average companies with stronger margins and more um, more stable margins also. Um you don't, you're not seeing that necessarily right now. Anyways, in the underlying numbers, if you look at Bloomberg estimates, for example, over the next 12 months, earnings growth is actually expected to be slightly higher in, in um, developed international markets at around 3%, and the U.S. is at around 1.6. Now, that can change very quickly because if we go back six months, it was actually staying negative for, for the U.S. and slightly positive for international. Whereas in Canada, though, 
we've actually seen that tail off quite a bit. It's it's down to uh, 12-month expected earnings growth of around nine, minus 9%. And uh, maybe one of the reasons why Canadian, Canadian equity ETFs have slightly lagged international also on a relative basis. But uh, just a lot of stuff I think that, that's happened over the quarter that's that's really put us back a little bit and said, okay, what are, what are we what are we trying to do here the next 12 months? And I think the, the last leg of that, and maybe now I'm cheating a little bit, I'm going ahead into a bit of October, but if you look at the, the yield curve in, in the US now, it's, it's flattened out a lot. Um, is that something that you've, that you've been keeping an eye on? Because, you know, we mentioned the duration trade, but it seems like long rates really have picked up recently, or has the short end's been kind of now saying the Fed is close to done? Um, how does that impact, you think, on a go-forward basis, positioning of, say, fixed income portfolios, or at least on the active side, right, where they have the flexibility to adapt? Because if you're buying an index, I mean, you're getting what you're getting. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the yields, yields are decent, durations around six and a half, say, for the U.S. ag. For Canada, it's a bit longer. But as an active portfolio manager, does this impact positioning? On a go forward basis, yeah. I mean, I think it. I mean, I think it makes fixed income a hell of a lot more attractive, right? It's it's a mm-hmm. lot. It's a lot better investing in a, a flat, ideally positively sloped yield curve. But it, it's certainly better investing in a flat yield curve than a negative than a negative sloping yield curve. Um, you know, if you just think about the roll yield, it's obviously you want to get a positive roll yield and best best case scenario, which you can get with a positive sloping yield curve. So, um, it, it's definitely going to make bonds more attractive. I think. I think there's a few things at play there. Obviously, you know, as we know, uh, the Fed is in quantitative tightening, so they are reducing the size of the balance sheet. Um, there is some selling pressure from international markets just with regards to treasuries. I know China has been a net seller of treasuries since I think about 2014, 2015. Um, so there are some pressures there on the yield curve um, that's pushing kind of the belly and the longer end of the curve back up so that things are, um, you know, a little flatter along the yield curve there. Um, but again, I, I think it's it, it's 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 adding to the attractiveness of bonds on a go forward basis. I think we're getting to a level where the forty side of your portfolio is actually going to give you some yield and actually is going to provide some some potential upside. Um, you know, just to shift to the Canadian curve, I think the Canadian curve is going to have a lot tougher time flattening out relative to the U.S. curve. I think there's a lot of um, I think the headwinds in Canada are a lot higher relative to the U.S. Um, and I know we've talked about this many, many times before, but it's 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 worth repeating. You know, the Canadian economy, when you take a look at the consumer, is just super, super levered, um, just just on a consumer debt basis. Uh, and then when you add in kind of the structural differences in the mortgage market in Canada relative to the U.S., given we've got a lot, lot much higher proportion of floating rate mortgages or variable rate mortgages, I should say, uh, as well as the term structure of our mortgage market is much, much different than the U.S. In the U.S., there's a lot of 30-year terms. A lot of people refinance that, you know, 2%, 3%. Um, so in Canada, even those folks who were fixed at lower rates we're going to start to see some of those roll off. And if you think back to 2020 or even 2019, when rates were super, super low, obviously 2021, they were still low um, during COVID. Um, You know, those are going to start to roll off, you know, 2025. And, you know, even, even, even folks who fixed, you know, earlier that 2018 is still super, super low rates. So uh, the Canadian consumer is going to continue to feel the pinch. There's going to be a lot of sticker shock of folks when they refi their mortgage and, you know, realize they've got, you know, several thousand dollars more of outlays a month. So obviously that's going to trickle down into consumption. People, 
you know, think of your consumer discretionary names, people are going to start to cut back, you know, think about, you know, eating out, going to the movies, folks are going to start start to cutting back on those, those types of things. Because at the end of the day, when you take a look at, you know, previous default cycles and credit events, when, when, when consumers start defaulting, the last thing they typically want to default on is their mortgage. Um, so credit cards and auto loans are kind of the first thing to go. Um, so again, there's going to be a lot of pressure, pressure on the Canadian consumers. As a result, you're probably see, you're going to start to see some pressure on the Canadian banks as well. I know a lot of them have, uh, recently increased their provisions for loan losses. And so those, those numbers, while they aren't solidified losses there, it's money that the banks have to put away, you know, in anticipation of potential losses down the line. And, and those do, even those provisions, they do hit, they do hit the income statement um, for the bank. So we've seen those steadily being pushed up, um, probably mostly as it relates to their mortgage books. Um, so again, the Canadian, the Canadian economy certainly has a lot more headwinds from a macroeconomic perspective relative to the US. So again, um, you know, again, so for fixed income, uh, you know, I don't I don't think you're going to see the, the belly in the longer end of the Canadian curve move quite move up as much quite as the U.S. curve. Um, and then from the equity side, yeah, I think you're just going to see, you know, as as the as the earning estimates are already suggesting, I think you're going to see some sort of contraction there. Yeah, no, that's all really good points. And you can really see it in, in, in just the, the shape of the curves right now. Like you said, we like the Canadian curve not so long ago was pretty much at par, if not, you know, yields were a bit higher in Canada. Now, you know, we're, we're close to, uh, I'm looking at it now, uh, US 10 years at 4.9 as of October 20th today, uh, Canadian 10 years at 4.1. Uh, that's, that's a discrepancy that also leads to, uh, it's, it's, it's got an impact on currency, for example, which is definitely obviously hurt the Canadian dollar. And, and, you know, one of the main themes I think we've heard from our, especially our asset allocation people in, in Florida last week, uh, we also heard this from our uh, director of global macro and you're in Timmer, from the CIO of, of Fidelity Investments Canada um, Investment Management, Andrew Marchese, you know, the relative strength of the US versus Canada, albeit, once again, we've talked, we talked about the valuation premium, well, all of a sudden, it kind of makes more sense also when you're basically on the back of the, the US consumer versus the Canadian consumer. Uh, while things are kind of getting a bit worse here, but not so much so in the U.S. Um, a few other things I wanted to touch on, Andre, that I mentioned ESG to start. Now, is this, you know, you have the opportunity also of, of talking with with market makers and kind of, uh, you know, obviously dealers and, and, and a bit higher up, let's say, than, you know, talking directly to advisors and, and, and investors. Is there just a new appetite coming for ESG or is this maybe just kind of not, not a fluke, let's say, but really a bounce back off something that was talked about so much in 2020, so much in 2021. And then with 2022, obviously, a lot of that stuff was trading at a premium and was more sensitive as, as rates moved up and you saw some selling off there. But is there dip buying happening as all of a sudden now we, we, we want to reincorporate ESG as a larger part of the portfolio? Is there anything you've rumblings you've heard there or? Maybe it's a non-event. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good question. I think you made a good point about um, you know all, these ESG names are have, you know typically been very sensitive to interest rates. So obviously, as interest rates have marched higher, um, the ESG names have, have have got hit. You know, you mentioned some flows there recently. Um, you know, I think I think I think I remember taking a look at the, some of those flows, and they were pretty. 
um, pretty large blocks, individual blocks. So it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of, um, you know, breadth in terms of the underlying buyers of this, these particular, uh, these particular securities. And just anecdotally having conversations with clients, you know, it, it, it hasn't been front and center to be perfectly honest, you know, will it potentially come back if, if rates calm down and, you know, will we start talking about it a little, little more? It's very well possible. Just the conversations I've been having right now have been n- not, not necessarily centered around ESG, to be perfectly honest. People are just, most of the conversations I've been having has been around fixed income and rates um, and to a lesser degree, just about, you know, what do I do with my equities right now? Like, you know, if we are getting a recession, what do I do with my equities right now? So uh, I'd say those two themes have been kind of dominating the conversations that I've been having with clients. No, absolutely. And as much as, you know, the fixed income story feels like it gets better by the day and like the the the, the risk return or the, or the risk reward, I should say, not risk return, risk reward of, you know, in fixed income right now seems like it's really, really good. Like if yields go up another percent, you're not losing much. If they go down 1%, though, you could make a, a nice return on, on the 40 side of, say, your 60-40. But, you know, you mentioned the equity side not being as clear. Does that also apply then to, say, high-yield bonds? Which, if you look at this year, uh, you know, obviously, it's a smaller category. Like, it, you won't really see, like, distinct flows into individual high-yield ETFs, right? It's not a category that's very big in Canada anyways, that there are definitely a lot more in the US just because the market's a lot bigger. But, you know, positive on the quarter, positive on the year. At one point, at what point do does high yield maybe then start to reflect the underlying conditions we're seeing in equities where earnings growth has been a bit weaker, you've seen impact on margins from inflation, default rates on the corporate side haven't trickled up too much. Notably, anyways, as our managers see it, is because one of the main reasons is the refinancing that happened in corporate, say, in the corporate space in 2020 and 2021. But is there, uh, is there going to be maybe a bit of waning appetite as we head into the later stages of the cycle for for high yield, or is just the yield just it's just so good right now on a nominal basis, uh, you know, north of eight uh, percent for for those types of products? Yeah, I mean, when you're taking a look at, um. When you take a look at the high yield space, so you know you did mention you know defaults have trickled up modestly, but I still think they're they're relatively low from a historical perspective. Um, you know, one of the one, a good point that uh, I think Jeff Moore made down in uh, down in Palm Beach was that you know a lot of these high yield names don't have anything to default to. You don't really see that maturity wall. Um, we don't really hit that maturity wall till about somewhere around twenty twenty five. You know, that being said, you don't you don't just need a high yield company to default to lose money. You know, obviously, if credit spreads wide and, you know, spreads wide and price goes down, that's obviously not ideal for your high yield as well. Um, but, you know, there I would think that if we do get into a recessionary environment, you could ex- you should expect credit spreads to widen out. Now, the thing here is that's important as well is that there's just so much yield baked in that you know your your spreads are going to have to widen out quite a bit for you to kind of kind of end up negative on the year. Um, so I think that's why it's still seeming relatively attractive, and that's why you know you, you're still seeing quite a bit of money there and why we haven't seen a ton of selling. And as a result, we haven't seen, you know, market increases in credit spreads. 
So right now it still seems, you know, relatively attractive, but, you know, I think what people have to be cognizant of is, you know, we, we, we are potentially going into a recession at some point, those credit spreads could widen. But again, as I mentioned, the yields are at least juicy enough to provide some cushion um, to cushion you from any potential defaults or uh, from credit spread widening. Yeah, that's a good point. Just to put in perspective, uh, albeit yields are in the top decile for high yield, uh, your spreads are actually in the bottom quartile. So exactly what you're explaining, right, is that you, you do have some yield baked in, but Credit spreads just maybe not so not really being compensated for the risk you're taking on, but that's going to be interesting how it develops. The last thing I want to touch on, Andre, and then and I'll let you go, and is the multi asset category. And, and I guess at Fidelity, where uh, you know we launched some products in 2021, followed up with two others in 2022, our all in one ETF portfolios. Those have been real uh, strong from a flows perspective. Anyways, here at Fidelity, so far this year, our F Val ETF and F Grow ETF being our second and third best selling. Uh, ETFs um, in-house, is that a category that continues to, to grow in popularity? Uh, the simplicity of it, obviously, you're buying like a, a it's basically ETFs, an ETF of ETFs, um, you know, fully rebalanced, uh, managed risk, all these all these great things. Uh, what, where, where's that category going? And I know it's, it's, it, it's, it historically was driven a lot by the individual investor, but now you're seeing that adoption a lot from advisors incorporating them in, in their portfolios also. Yeah, you, you've certainly seen since around kind of Q3 of 2020 that that category has been kind of steadily growing in AUM. Um, it continues to see inflows. I mean, I, th I think there's just a, you know, uh, I include our products and there's just a lot of good products that um, that are just resonating with advisors. So, you know, the you know, as you mentioned, we we've got a full suite of products, all the way from all equity, all the way up to you know a conservative mandate. So, um, I I think these kind of you know low cost uh, you know multi asset mandates are certainly resonating with with investors and advisors alike. To your point, you know initially it was you know driven by the DIY channels, but now we're seeing a large large uptick in 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 demand from the advisor community as well. Um, you know, I, th I think these portfolios just provide a nice, you know, especially, you know, if you think about a core and explore approach to portfolio management, it provides a nice, you know, steady core position where you're getting your allocation, your asset classes, your geographies, and you're well diversified. And again, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to, you know, why we created these, these solutions was, again, we wanted to give the investor a, the smooth ride over the entire investment cycle. Obviously, diversification is the best way to achieve that. So, uh, again, as I mentioned with the core and explore approach, you'll see folks buying, you know, a large chunk of the app, these asset allocation products. And then, you know, around the edges, depending on their market views or, or some other uh, goals they are looking to achieve with their portfolio, they can tweak some stuff around the edges to get kind of the portfolio to best meet their investment goals. Oh, that was a great... Great summary on that front. I think it's a category that's just going to continue to uh, to grow as we go forward. But Andre, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us once again. You are, uh, you know, our, our our most frequent guest on the podcast, and you always deliver. So we'll definitely have you back on. Uh, thanks again for joining us, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the ETF Exchange powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. And subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again, and see you next time.